All right, our passage is Matthew 21. There is an outline in the bulletin. You can follow along with the message this morning. And one last reminder, we're going to take the Lord's Supper uh, in the middle of the sermon this morning. And so if you do not have the elements and you would like to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, you can make your way to the back, one of the two tables back there, and pick those up. We will not be bringing those by later in the service. If you are reading the New Testament with us this year, and I hope that you are, you know that we're here at the end of January, and we're now at the end, sort of, of the Gospel of Matthew. We're about to finish our first book of the New Testament. So this last week, together we read Matthew 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and the passage that we're going to look at together is the very first bunch of verses in that window that we have read together. This is the story, this is the passage that we traditionally call Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as we go through the New Testament this year, as we move quickly through these books and we sort of drop in and pull back out, it's going to be important each week that we find our bearings, we remind ourselves of the context, because we're not moving passage by passage like we normally do. And so I just want to say a few things contextually about Matthew chapter 21. The first is this, Matthew 21 brings us to the end of Jesus' life, to the final week that Jesus spent on earth. And I just want to put a, a brief sort of overview timeline of what happened the last week that Jesus was on earth. And so I'll throw that up here. There it is. Saturday, Mary anoints Jesus on Sunday. This is our passage. It's the triumphal entry. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. On Monday, Jesus cleared the temple and he cursed a fig tree. And those two stories go together. You understand something about each of those stories when you read them as a group. On Tuesday, Jesus debated the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He taught his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Wednesday was a quiet day. We don't know anything for certain that happened on that day. And so we won't speculate or guess. We'll just say, it was a quiet day. On Thursday, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He prayed in Gethsemane. On Friday, having been arrested, he was tried. He was crucified. He was buried. Saturday, another quiet day. And then Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We are now in the final week of Jesus' life. And one of the things that you will notice as you have now read most of Matthew and then you move to Mark and you move to Luke and you move to John is that the gospel authors, all four of them, they give a summary or an overview of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry, and then they really, really slow down and they give detailed accounts of the final week of Jesus' life. So you know that I like numbers, I'm a visual guy, and so this is a great opportunity to just show you some numbers about how this plays out. In the Gospel of Luke, 16 and a half chapters are devoted to Jesus' earthly ministry. Five and a half devoted to just the final week of his life. And the percentages go up from there. In Matthew, 18 chapters compared to eight. In Mark, 10 
compared to six. And John is almost 50-50. He almost spends as much time talking about the last week that Jesus spent on earth as he does the whole three years that Jesus was carrying out his public ministry. So what does that tell us when you read the Gospels? It tells us that we need to know about Jesus' public ministry. It's important. The things that he taught, the things that he did, the people that he healed, the demons that he cast out, all of that's important. But what's really important is the final week that Jesus spent on earth because what's really important is not just that Jesus came to teach or heal people or do nice things for people, but it's that he came to die on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. One last note, Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe Jesus sending his disciples to secure a donkey and in Matthew, a donkey and a colt for his entrance into Jerusalem. And I just want to acknowledge there are some Bible scholars that see a miracle here. And I guess if you see a miracle here, if you're a Star Wars fan, you can think Obi-Wan Kenobi saying to the stormtroopers, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And you could imagine the disciples coming up to this guy's farm and taking his donkey and he says, hey, what's going on? And they say, this isn't the donkey you're looking for. And they just sort of walk off. Maybe, perhaps, possibly something like that happened. It's also entirely possible, Jesus has been to Jerusalem numerous times before this, that Jesus has arranged this whole thing with the owner of this animal. And he said, look, I'm coming back at the Passover I'm going to need this animal and I'm going to send my guys and here's the sort of passcode and maybe there's not anything miraculous about it at all. Whichever side you want to take, I don't care because the disciples and this donkey are not the main point of this story. It's not what you really need to drill down on and focus on. The main character in this story, not surprisingly, is Jesus. And the big idea of this passage is very simple, but very important. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Everything in Matthew 21, 1 to 11 is screaming out this one central truth. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the son of God, Jesus the son of man, Jesus is the king. Now, I think it's important because we are Americans to start by acknowledging the fact that Americans don't do kings. We want nothing to do with kings. We know all about presidents, we know all about senators and congressmen and judges and all sorts of other elected officials and appointed officials. What we don't do in the United States of America are kings. There are some fascinating stories that go back to the founding of our nation, stories that center around George Washington, who we know as one of our founding fathers and the first president of the United States of America. Some of these stories involve people who thought that George Washington should be the first ruler of our nation, but that he should take the title, not president, king. In fact, one of the colonels in his army sent him a letter towards the end of the Revolutionary War, the Newburgh letter, and he said to Washington in that letter, when this is all over, and it was looking good for the rebels, when this is all over, you should be called king. And we're not entirely sure what Washington said in reply, but 
Rumor tells us, legend tells us it was something like this. I did not defeat King George III to become King George I. We're not going to have a king. The title that we settled on was president. Washington was our first president. Washington served a second term as president. And then he did something that absolutely shocked people all around the world. At the end of his second term as president, he said, that's it, I'm done. I'm walking away. This blew people's minds. We're used to this because it happens every four or eight years, but this was absolutely a new thing for most people on the planet. In fact, one of the people who was shocked by George Washington saying, I'm going to step down, was King George III of England. He couldn't wrap his mind around the idea that someone as great as Washington would have the position and the power and then would just give it up and walk away from it all. In fact, when King George III heard that Washington was going to step down and walk away from being president, this is what King George said. If he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. He just didn't have a category for somebody that would not want to be king. Now, we live 250 years later. We can't imagine anybody wanting a king as Americans. Now, we like the tabloid gossip from across the pond. We want to know about this wedding and that wedding and who's, what's going on, and we're interested in all that. But are we interested in having kings here? The answer for virtually all Americans is absolutely not. We don't do kings as Americans. Now listen to me. Me and Lee Greenwood, we are proud to be Americans. But when you don't do kings and you open the Bible, and the Bible says to you that Jesus Christ is a king. As Americans, there's something that we struggle to understand there. There's something that doesn't come naturally to our understanding. We say, you mean like a president? No. You mean like a senator? No. You mean like a Supreme Court justice? No. He's a king. So the aim for us this morning, as Americans, is not to institute a new earthly king, but is to listen to the Bible and to hear what Matthew is telling us in this story as he describes, as he presents to us Jesus, the king. So the question is this, what does Matthew tell us about Jesus, the king? Firstly, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the promised king, the promised king. He didn't come out of nowhere. His coming was promised in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 21, verse nine. The crowds before him and following him shout out, Hosanna to, here's your phrase, the son of David. They say, Jesus, you are the son of David. That title, the son of David, goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. And you can read it on your own. 2 Samuel 7. David the king has an idea. And David the king has the idea, I want to build God a house. I want to build a house for him. The Lord God sent a prophet named Nathan to David, and Nathan said to David the king, hey, great idea, except we're not going to do that. At least you're not going to do that. I don't need you to build me a house, David. In fact, David, what's going to happen is I'm going to build you a house. 
God wanted to build David a house. Not like four walls and a roof and a chimney and a front door and a couple of nice windows and flowers in the front bed. But a dynasty. A line of kings who would come from David's family. God says, I'm going to build a house for you. And God very clearly says to David, one of your sons who will come from you will have a throne that lasts forever. He will reign and he will rule and he will have no end to his reign or his rule. He'll be a king forever. You know the funny thing about all of David's kids? They all died. All of them. Some of them sat on the throne of Israel or if you want to call it the southern kingdom of Judah, they sat on David's throne for about 200 years. Most of them were abject failures. Even the best of them fell far short of being a king who reigned and ruled forever. But God's people knew the promise from 2 Samuel 7, and so they kept waiting and they kept hoping. And even when David was dead and gone, and even when his house had been sent into exile in Babylon, God's people, prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, kept saying, David is going to come. The son of David will come. The king will come and he will reign and he will rule and his reign and his rule will have no end. And God's people through some of the most horrific circumstances held on to that promise. The promise that God would send the son of David to be the king. And this crowd gets it exactly right when they look at Jesus riding this donkey into Jerusalem and they say, that's the son of David. What they're saying is, that's the promised king. Secondly, what does Matthew tell us about Jesus the king? He tells us that Jesus is the prophet king. The prophet king. Look at verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, and the whole city's asking one question. Who is this? Right, the crowds have identified him as he rides in. This is the son of David. But all these pilgrims in Jerusalem, there's all these people. Some of them are not quite sure, and they're saying, who is this man? Verse 11, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The prophet Jesus. When they call Jesus the prophet, they're appealing to an even older Bible verse than 2 Samuel 7. They're going all the way back to Deuteronomy 18. Moses, the very first leader of God's people, at the end of his life said, God will raise up for you another prophet. Moses was the first prophet for God's people. He spoke the words of God to the people of God. And Moses said, listen, God will raise up from among you one of your brothers to be a prophet. And Moses said this, listen to him. Listen to him. Those of you who are reading through the New Testament, you're about to come to the Gospel of Mark. In the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, you will find people who are absolutely amazed at the teaching of Jesus because he taught as one who had authority. In Jesus' day, what was typical for the rabbis was to not say anything original or new, but it was just to quote other rabbis. 
So an entire sermon, entire Sunday school lesson, an entire talk would just be quoting other people who have said other things, quoting other people. It's just endless rabbis quoting rabbis. Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, walked into that world and he said, truly, truly, I say to you. I don't need to quote a rabbi. Verily, verily, I say unto you. I'm not quoting a rabbi. I'm just telling you what is true. I'm speaking God's word to his people. You have heard that it was said, well, let me tell you what I have to say. He was a prophet, and he spoke with authority. My all-time favorite TV show is on ESPN. It's a show called PTI, Pardon the Interruption. Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. I Love this show. I watch this show as often as I can. At this stage in my life, I'm usually not home when it's on TV, so if I can't watch it, I download the podcast. Every evening, the podcast downloads, and you guys know me. I'm a creature of habit. I do the same thing every morning. One of the first things I do when I wake up as I'm fixing breakfast for my kids is I turn on the PTI podcast, and I listen to Mike and Tony. If one of them's out, I don't want to listen to one of these fill-in guys. I want Mike and Tony. So I turn it on, and I listen to these guys start arguing. Now, I know while I'm in the kitchen fixing breakfast, listening to Mike and Tony, I know that as soon as other human beings come into the kitchen, PTI goes off. I love PTI. I think this is a perfect television show. It is wonderful. Everyone else in my family hates it. They absolutely detest it. They want nothing to do with it. They're all grumpy in the morning, and if this is playing when they come in the kitchen, they just get grumpier. They don't want to hear it. They want nothing to do with this. They say, look, these guys are just arguing. They're talking over each other. They don't know what they're talking about. They're predicting things two days in advance, two weeks in advance, two years in advance. They don't know anything. They're just a couple of bloviators, and they want absolutely nothing to do with it. Here's how much my wife hates this kind of thing. This week on Facebook, one of our vocalists named Brianne Wynn made a very tacky comment about this kind of TV show. And I just thought it was out of line. So I thought, I need to say my piece here. So I left a comment now, what I know about Facebook is that my wife does not like anything on Facebook. She might stalk you from time to time. Does not matter how cute a picture you post, she's not gonna like it. She doesn't even like my posts. She doesn't comment, she doesn't say anything. And lo and behold, I open up Facebook and I have a notification that for the first time in a decade, my wife has said something on Facebook. And what she said in a nutshell is, this kind of stuff is ridiculous. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to hear it. It's just a couple of guys arguing and debating. They don't speak with authority. You know what? I like PTI, and I'm going to keep listening to it early in the mornings. I'll pause it. I'll resume the episode after my kids get out of the car and I'm driving to work. But she's right. These guys don't speak with any authority. In fact, from time to time on the show, they remind each other of things that they've said that were completely ridiculous and off base. 
Oh, you thought this guy wasn't going to be good. Well, he's a Hall of Famer. What do you know? You know nothing. You don't speak with authority. Listen, that's what you get on social media. That's what you get on ESPN. That's what you get on cable news. You get people bloviating. It's not what you get with Jesus. You get the prophet. Not a prophet, the prophet. The one who came to speak the truth of God's word to God's people, who says, truly, truly, I say to you. He's not guessing. He doesn't have a hunch. He's not going off a feeling or his gut, but he's speaking what is true. We would do well to listen to Moses who said, listen to him. Listen to him. Next, what does Matthew tell us about Jesus the king? Tells us that Jesus is the humble king. He's the humble king. You may think that somebody who speaks the very word of God would be haughty and proud and boastful, but he's humble. Look at Matthew 21, verse 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and what you read in verse 5 is actually two Old Testament prophecies mashed together, one from Isaiah and one from Zechariah. Matthew takes two of them, he mashes them together, and he says, the prophets say this, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble. He's humble, and he's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He's humble. He's humble. He's not haughty. He's not domineering. He doesn't have a PR firm. He's humble. Look at verse 11. The crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The fact that Jesus grew up in Nazareth is not an unimportant detail. In fact, it's an important detail. It's not a place that you bragged about being from. You know, in the last couple of months, I've made a couple of trips, different places in the state of Texas for meetings for the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. And I go to some of these meetings, and I meet other pastors, and I meet other folks, and it's not true of Jason or Dana, but it's true of other people. I'll introduce myself, and I'll say, I'm a pastor in Odessa, Texas. And they give me the look. You know the look? You know the look. It's that look that says, oh, poor thing. <laughs> Odessa, I'm so sorry. It's the look people in DFW give to people from Odessa. It's the look Midland people give to Odessa people. It's the look Odessa people give to Crane people. You poor folks living in Crane, I can't imagine. It's the look the Crane people give to people in McCamey, and you can go on down the road as small as you want to get. You know the look. That's the look. Who is this guy? It's Jesus, the prophet. Where's he from? Nazareth. He's from McCamey, Texas. Don't rush over that too quick. What we're reading here in the Gospel of Matthew is that the eternal Son of God, the Word of God, humbled himself by taking on human flesh and being born as a baby, helpless baby, 
And he grew up and he graduated from high school of all places, not Jerusalem, not Rome, not Constantinople, not Istanbul, Nazareth. That's who Jesus is. He's humble. He left the throne of heaven to come to this earth and to be a servant. Not that we would serve him, but that he would serve us. What does that look like? It looks like Jesus of Nazareth down on his knees washing the dirty, dusty feet of his ungrateful, clueless disciples. That's what it looks like. Happened this week. It looks like Jesus of Nazareth giving himself to be crucified as a common criminal. When you read about this in the New Testament in a place, for example, like Philippians 2, I'll just remind you that Paul talks about the humility of Christ and leaving the throne of heaven, being born, taking human form, living the life of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in all that conversation, Paul says, if he was humble, his people ought to be humble. If that's what he was like, that's what you ought to be like if you recognize him as the king because he is the humble king. Fourthly, he is the savior king. The savior king. Look at Matthew 21, verse nine. The crowds are shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The Greek word here is pronounced, are you ready for this? Hosanna. The Hebrew word, this one's a little bit trickier, so lock in. Hoshiana. That's really complicated, right? In English, we don't translate it, we just transliterate it. We just move the sound right over and come up with the spelling, and we have this word, Hosanna. It literally comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 118, verse 25, that says this, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. And the word comes from the very first petition, save us. That's Hoshiana. That's Hosanna. Save us. Here's the backstory. Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. That group of psalms is known as the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms of Praise. They were sung throughout the Jewish year. They were especially sung at the Passover. And I don't know if you noticed, but as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, they are celebrating the Passover. The Passover is at hand. They are singing Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. They are singing, Save us, God, we pray. It's stuck in their heads like one of the songs that our band will sing and you leave this place humming it, singing it. They're singing it. Save us, save us. God, we need you to save us. That's the word Hosanna. It's a petition, it's a request. God, we need you to save us. And God's people kept singing it throughout the years, throughout the centuries, and over time, that request that God would save us became a title for the one that God's people were waiting for, the Savior, what does Matthew tell you about Jesus when he was born and the angel came to Joseph and said, you will name this baby Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Not from the Romans. 
from an enemy far greater and more deadly than the Romans from themselves. He will save his people from their sins. And they're singing it out. And they're calling Jesus, Hosanna, the one who comes to save us. You understand that the, the word Hosanna, it is the cry of a desperate person. Only someone who knows that they can't save themselves would ask God to do this. God, I cannot save myself. Would you please save me? Someone looking for Hosanna is not someone who thinks that they can pull themselves up by their own spiritual bootstraps, but somebody who says, I really need you to send the Savior. You understand that Hosanna, which we have sung this morning and we've read this morning, that gets to the heart of what Christian people do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we dare not come before God saying, God, it's been a pretty good week. I feel worthy this morning. I feel good enough to celebrate in remembering what Christ has done. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we are coming saying, Hosanna, God, we need you to save us. God, we make a mess of everything. We have made a mess of our lives and we need you to save us. We need Jesus the one who came to save his people from their sins. This morning, if you have never truly put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we ask that you not celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. So the Lord's Supper is a celebration for people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who came to save them from their sins. We remember his death remember his body broken. We remember his blood poured out. Remember the salvation that he secured for us. So if you have never trusted in Jesus, we ask that you not take of the elements. We ask that you visit with one of us after the service. We would love to talk with you about what it means to know Jesus as your Savior. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your King, if you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, then we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. So I'm gonna ask that you take your elements and we're gonna start with the bread. I'm gonna turn in my Bible to 1 Corinthians. I'm gonna read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 11 as we take the Lord's Supper together. So you can take the bread We'll put this on the screen. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 24. The Bible says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can open up the other side, take the cup. I'll read from the same passage, the very next two verses. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five and 26 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread 
and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you look at this passage from 1 Corinthians, I would just draw your attention to the very last phrase of what Paul says. He says, we look back and we remember the cross. We take the bread, we take the cup. In doing it, we are proclaiming the Lord's death in physical, visible form. And he says, we do it until he comes. He's coming. The king is coming. The king has promised his people that he will come back. And that brings me to the last thing I want you to see in Matthew 21. It's that Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king of kings. Matthew 21 verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. Jesus is saying that he is the Lord. He's the Lord. Why are you taking these animals? The Lord needs them. Who needed them? Jesus needed them. He's the Lord. As you keep reading in your Bible reading plan, eventually in December, we'll make it all the way to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 describes Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 19 describes Christ's return. There's similarities to what you read here, but most noticeably there's differences to what we read here as Jesus rides this donkey into Jerusalem. For one thing, in Matthew 21, Jesus is riding a donkey. When you get to Revelation 19, he's not riding a donkey, he's riding a war horse. For another thing, in Matthew 21, Jesus is riding into this city for the final time that he might die for the sins of his people. And in Revelation 19, he is riding back to this earth to make war against his enemies. In Matthew 21, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He has a ragtag bunch of disciples with him. In Revelation 19... When he comes back on this horse and his robe has been dipped in blood, he is riding with the armies of heaven at his side. I just put the passage up for us to read. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. In Matthew 21, the Lord needs that animal. Revelation 19, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This passage is about him from beginning to end. The big idea centers on Jesus. There's no denying that. As we close, let me make one small point. 
Jesus is the main character in this story. He's not the only character in this story. There's also a crowd of people laying down their garments, cutting branches and laying them down, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David. These people are in the right place at the right time saying all the right things. Right place, right time, all the right words are on their lips. You know, some of these people in this crowd have heard Jesus preach. He's been preaching for three years. These Passover pilgrims have come to Jerusalem from all over Judea, Samaria, Galilee, all over the Roman Empire. These people, some of them have heard Jesus preach. Maybe they were there when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Some of these people have watched Jesus cast demons out of people. They've seen it happen. I think it's entirely likely that some of the people in this crowd were there in the wilderness on the day when the crowd was hungry and Jesus fed thousands of them with a small boy's lunch. Some of them ate that lunch. You understand when you think about the timeline of Jesus' final week, some of these people were there in the village of Bethany right outside Jerusalem when Jesus called Lazarus to walk out from the tomb. They watched it happen. Some of them may not have been there to see it happen, but they have talked to Lazarus. I was dead. I stinketh. Here I am. And here they are in the right place at the right time saying all of the right things. And within just a few days, some of them, not all of them, but some of them will not be shouting Hosanna. They will be shouting, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Look, it's great to be in the right place with the right people and to say all the right things. It's good. But being in a place like this, on a Sunday morning like this, with people like this, doesn't encapsulate the essence of what it means to know Jesus Christ, to truly know him. I'm glad you're here. I hope the right things have seeped into your heart and to your mind this morning. I hope that you've sung with us. You've celebrated all the truths that we've talked about and sung about this morning. But receiving salvation from the king is not just about being in the right place at the right time with the right people and saying the right things. Ultimately, it's about knowing the truth about Jesus, knowing that he's the king and allowing that knowledge to shape your life when you leave a place like this. Let me pray for you.